this is Mike Dilt with the Relax Back UK show on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. On the Relax Back UK show we explore all kinds of health topics, so keep listening and enjoy the ride. And thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on this week's Relax Back UK show. I came across Mike yesterday via social media and also on her podcast when I heard her interview Jane Garvey. Uh, she has a podcast and it's called The Elephant in the Room. And uh, I do suggest you listen to it once you've listened to this one, of course. Um, I listened to this episode. It was about divorce, I think. But I listened because I'm a fan of her guest, who's Jane Garvey. And through listening to Women's, Women's Hour on Radio 4, I, I got to know Jane Garvey and became a bit of a fan. I used to drive a lot uh, for my job, uh, more than I do now, and I always listen to Women's Hour. And I bet I'm not alone. Do men admit to listening to Women's Hour? I don't know. Anyway, I used to enjoy it quite a lot. Through the podcast, I became a fan of uh, Liz O'Riordan as well. And she's a consultant breast surgeon. And in July 2015, she was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer at the age of 40. Because I'm pretty unique, I've had the one illness I spent my life training to treat. And that knowledge of being on both sides of the table has led to me being able to help doctors and nurses understand what patients need and help patients understand what's going through them. So with her absolutely unique experience, uh, she's written a couple of books. She co-authored the Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, How to Feel Empowered and Take Control. And it's sort of tips and tricks for anyone that this affects, whether fans, friends, patients, all the rest. And she's also written a, a memoir. She really is a fabulous guest. So please do stick around to hear all about her. station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things, make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% with the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk or click our banner on the UK Health Radio website. Discover alcohol freedom with Zero Zilch Zip. Because nothing's better. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. enjoyed chatting to Liz O'Riordan about her career and my first questions to her were really about the the early part of her working life. My first question that I'm, I'm thinking about and I think it's quite important uh, to, to cover this because being a surgeon you know is not really necessarily a soft option it's bloody hard work I suspect. So how long did it take to become a surgeon in the first place? 
That's a great question. And not many people know. And actually, when I was a junior doctor, I surveyed a lot of patients who thought it maybe took three, five years. They didn't understand. I went to medical school in 1993 and I became a consultant breast surgeon in 2013. Right. So, so this, that this was is... 20 years, five years of medical school, 13, 14 years of training, four years of a PhD. It's long hours. It's homework. It's exams. It's it's really hard. You have to be dedicated and committed to give up quite a lot of your life to be able to help people. Yeah. So uh, it's a long slog. Uh, yep. And, I, I, you know, I, I guess your heart has got to be in it. You've got to want to help people. You do. And it's the cliche. Whenever you go to your medical school interviews, they say, don't say you want to help people because they'll say you just want to be a nurse. But actually, most of us do just want to help people. And the great thing about medicine is there are so many different varieties. You find your niche. And for me, I knew I wanted to wear pajamas. I wanted to wear scrubs and be in the operating theatre and actually physically make a difference. All right. Well, I, I'm. I'm lucky, actually, in my life, I don't think I've ever needed a surgeon. Um, no, actually, that's not quite true. I had my wisdom teeth removed, and that was a general anaesthetic. But my wife has. Uh, she's needed mm -hmm. uh, surgery. And, and I'm pretty sure without people like you, actually, she wouldn't be here just now. So uh, a Aww. big shout out uh, to surgeons in general uh, and a big thank you. Um, now, are you practicing at the moment? I know, I know no, we're, I'm, we're, we're going to sort of your past a little bit, but are you practicing just now? No, I'm not. I retired through ill health reasons in February 2019, but actually I'm busier now than I ever was helping people online, social media, writing and talking. Um, I've learned a different way of doing what I used to love. Well, I, I've seen you cropping up on social media. I've, I've seen you everywhere, actually. In fact, <laughs> so the, the last time I saw you, I was at uh, an exhibition at the Science Museum. It was uh, a do for the opening, uh, which is that I the one in London or Manchester? Uh, it was in London. The London and one, I, yeah. I snuck in because my wife's an academic and she works in, in cancer research, and so they were. Uh, she she was invited to this exhibition, and I thought, oh, I'll go along. It might be a free beer, and uh, <laughs> it was actually really interesting. I really liked it, and I turned round uh, and out the corner of my eye, I saw a picture of you on this video screen. Uh, so. Yeah. Uh, why? What? You, and I, I'm sure this is related to you retiring through ill health. What's going yeah. on there? So the big secret, when I was 40 at the age in 2015, as a consultant breast surgeon, I found a lump and I just thought it was a cyst. I wasn't worried about it at all, but it turned out to be a large breast cancer. And so I suddenly had every single treatment I gave my patients, chemotherapy, mastectomy, reconstruction, radiotherapy. And two and a half years later, in 2018, it came back on my chest wall, which meant further surgery. And because I'm pretty unique, I've had the one illness I spent my life training to treat. And that knowledge of being on both sides of the table has led to me being able to help doctors and nurses understand what patients need and help patients understand what's going through them. And being part of the science exhibition and explaining cancer research and trials and how an important space it is to get more money to help was just a real privilege. The, the, the thing I did think about that the exhibition is it really shows how far medical science, if you like, has, mm. has come on. Because there, there were things there from like a hundred years ago. And yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about some of the radiotherapy kind of equipment and it looked yeah. absolutely terrifying. It looked like kind of, uh, 
torture equipment really and the old iron lungs for polio and now we have robotic surgery and ai is being used to help read scans and i think in the future we will have individualized medicine um it's really exciting um the, the, what i really thought though and this is i'm sure you're going to disagree with this is that the, the real advances seem to have come in the understanding of how cancer develops and works and kind of the drugs that you can use to try and combat it mm -hmm. uh, but the surgery still seems to be just chopping bits out is, is because is that a bit unfair? no anatomy hasn't changed the human body is basically the way it always has been since time begun um and surgery is basic plumbing you 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 cut out bits and you put them back together the challenge is knowing when not to operate and when it gets complicated but because anatomy is the same we have different so so but it has changed actually, especially in breast cancer surgery. When I was training, we used to call it slash and grab. It was a quick mastectomy at the end of the list. It was a very general operation that often the most junior doctor did. But now we reconstruct breasts, we recreate nipples, we reshape. So I think we are better at making better at the aesthetic effect. And with laparoscopic surgery, you know, you can have a major operation through keyhole and walk out of hospital two or three days later. So we are finding new ways to do the same operations inside you. Okay. And actually a lot of that is, is using um, technology. Mm. So the, the, the surgeon is, is kind of almost like playing a computer game. That, that sounds. But it is so the, the, the lap, not playing the lap a computer game. It's no, doing something very so serious. But it is with the keyhole surgery, you can't see inside the tummy. You are looking at a computer screen and you have to get very good at your 3D depth perception when you're looking at a blank screen. So you never actually see or touch or smell what you're operating on. Um, so actually, I think it's going to change as more and more children grow up using computer games and all those, you know, the AI headsets. Surgery will change completely. Will it, will it ever get to the point where your surgeon is somewhere else, not where you are? Well, I think they're potentially doing that now in the battlefield where they have drones that will come in and pick up soldiers and a, a surgeon in Boston can operate using robotic surgery. Um, okay. So I think it, it's very useful in some extreme. So you don't want surgeons on the battlefield. Um, no. Um, so actually it can be done. Surgeons need to be looked after. As you just said, they take a long time to train. Keep them out we of do. danger. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you, you've written a book about this. Part part of the, the reason being that you've experienced things from both sides. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, when it when it comes to being a patient, um, mm -hmm. the the surgeon is probably one of the first people. Well, I don't know. One one of the first people that a, a patient might see. So the cancer's yeah. chopped out, and then they go through lots of other processes. So, um, does the surgeon stay with the patient all the way through, or do they just do their their surgery they're chopping out as i say rather and, yeah. and then that's it or do you stay involved through the whole process it greatly depends on what the surgeon is treating if it's something simple like a hernia or an appendix you they wouldn't see you again for a lot of breast cancers most women don't go on to have chemotherapy so they see the surgeon they see them after they've had the surgery and then they'll pass them on to the oncology team and I would see my patients at one year and five years because they don't need a lot of input from me. Whereas something like bowel cancer, you may see your surgeon every year. It depends on what you've had done and how much follow-up is needed. Because the breast doesn't really do much, it's just fat and skin. I don't have to worry about stomas or pain or colostomies. They don't need me. They need the support of the breast care nursing team and the oncologist, but as a surgeon, my job is done. 
Okay, all right. So the what once once the surgeon's done his or her bit, actually yeah. a couple of times there's a bit of a slip of the tongue. I didn't mean to. I've I've said done his bit. Um, yes. That that's telling actually. I hadn't even thought about it before. Most of us assume that doctors are men and that surgeons are men. And even now, only about 10 or 12% of consultant surgeons are women. And when I was training, I didn't work for a female boss until 2008. And I started in 1993. Right. That's, that's, uh, that's telling. Um, it is still a man's world. And it's something that I still say. And I'm a female surgeon. Yeah. I'll tell you what, if I was on the slab um, needing uh, something done, I, I don't think I'd care. No, you don't care. And, and, and it's really interesting, actually, when, when I was when I needed surgery, my surgeon wasn't sure whether she could treat me because she was a friend. And it's really hard operating on people, you know. But then she said, who do you want? And you think, do I go for someone with a lovely bedside manner or someone who puts up pretty pictures at a conference or someone who's terrible to talk to, but it's got a really good pair of hands and everybody wants different things. Yeah. Goodness me. All right. Let, let's part that because I think I yep. suspect that's a very interesting chat for another time. Come back to your book that you, yes. you wrote about sort of the, the whole uh, process, the whole experience of having cancer. I guess the first thing is kind of what was the um, your objective of writing the book? How and who were you trying to help? It's a really interesting question. So when I was diagnosed, I thought I knew everything there was. And I realized I knew nothing because I'd never been a patient before. And I read 10 books written by women who'd had breast cancer. And for the first time in my life, I went on breast cancer forums, the Breast Cancer Now website. And I read the kind of terrifying questions patients were asking. Terrifying for me as a doctor, because you realize no one listens to anything I say after I've said it's cancer. Like if I have sex with my husband, will his hair fall out if I'm having chemo? And another friend of mine now who I knew on Twitter was having chemo on the same day she was a doctor she's a professor she bought a different 10 books and we realized patients don't understand what's happening to them how can we help them understand it give them questions explain and not just the treatment but how you live after surgery so that's why we wrote the complete guide to breast cancer just to help patients understand and also to help their family especially during COVID, because if you've been to see the doctor by yourself and they give you this big spiel, you then have to go home and be a doctor yourself and tell your husband or your wife, what did the doctor say? Right. And also for doctors to realize the questions patients are asking so they can give them information about the menopause or going back to work. Just that kind of, I used to tell patients not to Google Mike and it's ridiculous. I'll give you all the information you need, just rubbish. The first thing I did. So it's kind of a, a confident, safe, reliable source of information. Right. Okay. Now, did a lot of this? I don't know for a lot of it, but in when you when you were working as a surgeon, you know, mm. you were very busy. So even if a patient really wanted to ask you a load of questions, um, there must have been in the back of your mind, okay, I'll answer these questions, but I've got to see the next patient. Were always. You, there's always a, a, a time thing going on. Always. So I, as a breast surgeon, I never knew how many cancers I was going to treat. A lot of it would depend on women who were picked up through breast screening and my clinic appointments were 10 minutes. And if I had six cancers, I could easily take a good 30, 40, 50 minutes with them. And they need that time when the clinic overruns. But I think as doctors, I have an agenda. I would say so you're coming in to see me and say, right, hi, Mike, sit down. You've got this. I'm going to do this. This is what's going to happen. Any questions at the end. And as a patient, 
you've been in that waiting room, you know they're busy, you don't want to bother the doctor, you don't want to ask. And I think if we were to think, right, let's shift the power balance. Before you start, ask the patient, do you have any questions? Because it may be something like, well, who's gonna look after my disabled son? And that may change how you treat that patient because what's important to their life? We don't have enough time. That's why we rely on nurses and GPs, but it's making sure they're all joined up and we all know the information we need to give patients. Yeah. Certainly when I go to the doctor, if, if it's something that I'm sort of more concerned about, I always try and write a list of questions before mm-hmm. I go in. Uh, and um, I, I can imagine your book might help patients write their list of questions. So at the end of every chapter, we have a list of questions to think about, questions to ask the doctor. And I tell anyone listening, I know how stressful it is sat in the appointment room, even me as a doctor. Will they let me ask the questions? I feel embarrassed. Will they think I'm being silly? Forget that. This is your chance to go and see that person and ask for help. It's the one time you have no control over the outcome. It purely relies on that conversation. So going in with a list before they start and say, this is what's on my mind. It will make you feel easier because the doctor knows what you want to ask and it will help them guide the conversation. Yeah. Don't feel I, embarrassed I, or silly. I, I must admit the odd time I've, I've done that I've put the piece of paper on the desk and let let the doctor see that yeah. there is a list of questions. Yeah, it does. It does help the doctor as well, because we often you come back three or four times because you're still not happy and we don't know why. So I love it when patients come with questions. Good. All right. And it sounds like your book helps them get mm. some succinct questions. All right. So is your book is aimed at, at breast cancer or cancer in general. It's pure. It's, it's breast cancer. But if you take out the two or three chapters dealing with purely breast cancer treatment, we talk about how to cope with diagnosis, how to tell your family, relationship, sex and intimacy, what to eat, how to what crazy diets not to eat, exercise, the fear of recurrence. It's quite a general how to cope with cancer after diagnosis beyond and it coming back. So yeah. it would be helpful for anyone going through it if yeah. you just remove the couple of breast cancer chapters. OK, no, I, I get it. You, you touched on something there, which I, I must admit, sometimes. Uh, makes me kind of well angry actually some mm-hmm. bonkers diets you know yes. eat this, it'll don't get that. me started yes uh, and um I, 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 yeah I, I i had a suspicion there might be some that kind of upset you um a little bit i wonder if it's uh, again this could be uh, another show but is there any one thing in particular that is guaranteed to make your blood boil in those sorts of situations oh there's there's so many i think the cancer community is vulnerable and we want control and we want a quick fix. And there are so many influencers and people peddling things and you believe them because they've got a hundred thousand followers. There is no, the simple thing is there is no one diet, no one supplement that can stop you getting cancer or stop your cancer coming back. There isn't. If there was, your doctors would tell you. Yes. <laughs> people that say, oh, sugar causes cancer. Almost everything you eat gets broken down to sugar. You can't starve a cancer cell, you starve your body. The alkaline diet, I hate. I mean, you know this, your body has to run at a very tight um, pH level. It's kind of neutral. And you can eat every alkaline food you want, but your body will make it neutral because that's what your enzymes need to work. It's just rubbish. And I hate people are spending hundreds of thousands of pounds following the Gershon diet or the Budwig diet or having turmeric enemas. There is no scientific evidence to prove that it works. But if it gives you that sense of control and it makes you feel better, then that's fine. But it's not going to cure the cancer. The boring thing is a healthy, well-balanced diet. You don't need extra vitamins and supplements. 
It just needs a balanced diet. Yeah. Let, let's move on because I, I can feel the, yeah. the heat of some of your anger coming through Zoom. <laughs> and I don't want to. I don't want to be. No, I'll calm down now. You. No. Let, let, let's move on to um, diagnosis of of, mm. of cancer. Not not just yeah. breast cancer, but certainly breast cancer is yeah. all cancers. Early diagnosis. Every every person I I talk to uh, says early diagnosis is the key, right? So yes. How are we doing in the UK? Could we do better? Um, are we doing the right kind of things? I think we were doing very well, but I think we've really been hit by COVID because a lot of people were scared to go to the doctor and we are very short on staff, especially for radiology. There's a thing that came out, I think today, looking at how there's a huge backlog of cancer scans because we just don't have the staff because we are catching up on all the COVID backlog. I think we need to get better at educating the general public and talking to kids before they go to university, you know, check your weed, check your poo, check your genitalia, check your breasts. If you don't know what the signs of cancer are, you don't know when to be worried. And I think that's the real thing. It is purely public education and telling people if you have something you're concerned about, go and see your GP and they will arrange a scan. So you know what to do if you're worried, because most people don't think it can happen to them. And we now know people like Deborah James on Bell Babe on social media. People are getting cancers at a younger age. And I think it's really important. We are all self-aware. Um, getting diagnosed early doesn't mean you won't die because some people do get really bad cancers that are just aggressive, but it gives you the best chance you have of a cure. Right. So but we don't talk about it. I remember when I was training, we didn't mention the cancer word. It was neoplasm or malignancy. But the best thing you can do is just check your body. Even moles, you know, skin cancer will get a sunburn. You need to have a good idea of what's normal for you. Right. OK, so if you hear someone talking about uh, information to do with any sort of cancer, just listen. Um, yeah. In fact, I'll, I'll plug one of my own shows. Yesterday, I spoke to uh, a GP, Dr. Henderson, and he was mm -hmm. talking about get checked out for prostate cancer. You know, these are the signs that. That's yeah. OK, right. So just get checked. And the thing is, GPs will listen and will take you seriously. They're extremely yeah. busy. Um, but. Don't worry about it. Make an appointment and go and see them. Most GPs know what the red flag warning signs are. And if you say I've lost a lot of weight or I've got a lump under my arm or I've had poo, I've had blood in my poo, they will see you and they will refer you on because they don't want to miss a cancer. But if you don't see that, sometimes people present with very soft symptoms and it's a bit like a logic puzzle. We have to rely on a bell ringing on our head to say that could be something. And if it's rare and it doesn't fit the pattern, it may take longer. And they're the cases that hit the media and they say, GP missed my cancer. Yeah. But we're human and we work on pattern recognition. So it's not always easy. No. OK. Go and see your doctor if you're worried about it. Before we continue with the rest of the interview with Liz, I just want to mention something because um, Deborah James has passed away since I did the recording uh, with Liz. And in fact, uh, Liz O'Riordan has mentioned it on her social media. She said that when someone who is uh, famous, someone who's in the public in the public eye, dies of cancer, that it can really be a trigger of emotions for for patients that do have cancer. And I'm sure that is the case uh, in this situation. And in fact, Liz mentions this on her social media. She gives advice what to do, because effectively you can be surrounded by the evidence of what this disease can do to you. It's, it can be hard when faced with it. 
almost kind of every which way you turn. So her advice is just have a time out from social media, switch it off for however long uh, you need. It could be a couple of hours or a couple of days. I suppose it will depend on some extent how um, how long the news of this, this person's uh, death or, or car carries on for. But anyway, certainly Deborah James uh, did a, a lot of good. She raised a lot of money. Uh, she had bowel cancer and she died of bowel cancer. So she raised awareness uh, of that. Here are some of the symptoms. Now, as I've said before, I'm not a medical person. In fact, I've, I've read these off uh, Liz's um, social media, but I'm going to mention them here because I think it's kind of uh, important and worthwhile doing. Um, bleeding, if there's blood in your poo, uh, that is a sign. Uh, if you've got diarrhea or constipation that, that's kind of new that you're not used to. Unexplained weight loss, uh, extreme tiredness if you feel very tired for no particular reason, or you've got pain or a lump in your tummy. Um, go to the GP, ask a question, see if you can get a, a test done. These symptoms don't necessarily mean that you have uh, bowel cancer. You know, it, it could it could be something else that's just completely innocuous, but it's worth just finding out. Uh, the test is sending in some uh, poo in the post. You get a special test kit. You get a stick that you smear the poo onto and just put it in a special bottle and post that off. Uh, and in fact, what that's doing is looking for blood, small amounts that you, you can't see with the naked eye. So they test your poo uh, for the blood. In fact, I did this recently because I'm 56. I came uh, in line with some uh, a bowel cancer screening uh, program, which I think is probably due to uh, where I live. It was a bit of a faff. Uh, you've got to kind of catch your poo and then use this special stick to scrape a bit off and stick it in the bottle and then send it in uh, off in the post where they can uh, do the test. So it's a bit of a faff. But I've got to say, it was a lot less trouble than... Um, providing a sample previously. The last time I did this, um, I was about 20 uh, when I had to do this. I had a summer job in Nepal, which sounds very glamorous, uh, and it was good fun. It wasn't really glamorous. I was studying civil engineering, and I worked with the TRRL, that's the, the Transport and Road Research Laboratory, uh, with a contractor, and uh, they were working on building roads in Nepal, some in flat areas and some in mountainous areas. And there was a project using vegetation to stabilise uh, the road cuttings. Uh, it's kind of ahead of its time, I think. It was it was really interesting. Uh, it was really good fun. And I also took time off to do a bit of trekking uh, in Nepal. I trekked at Everest Base Camp. And essentially, I had a, a really fantastic, a very interesting time. And that's not the that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is I came back to this country with some little friends uh, in my gut. I came back with Jardia. And um, Jardia is horrible. It means that you're, you've got really, really smelly poos, really egg, smelling of egg farts. It's, it's just really unpleasant. And it, you kind of, your gut can feel quite painful. Uh, so when I got back uh, from Nepal, back at university, I'd, I'd started the next year's studying. Uh, I went to the doctor and he wanted a sample. It was the same process, but there was no sort of little bottle. It wasn't kind of quite so easy. Um, as a student, uh, I ate a lot of Marmite. Um, so I performed and took my sample in 
in a, a Marmite bottle. Um, however, I took it in to drop it off to the, the GP on, on the campus, um, but they didn't do sample pickups every day. So I was told I had to go away and bring the thing back tomorrow. So I carried my Marmite bottle full of poo around uh, lectures. And then when I got home, back to my student house, I didn't really quite know what to do with it. So I, I had to put it in the fridge till the next day. Um, then the next day I, I took it back and uh, got the test and got the medication and all was fine. But I'm not sure if to this day I've actually really told my housemates that um, I left a Marmite jar full of poo in the fridge. Um, I also I lost a lot of weight. I was pretty ill. Looking at me now, you wouldn't really uh, think that I'd uh, lost a, a lot of weight to uh, Jardia. And I, th I think it's essentially it's amoebic dysentery. Um, but anyway, enough for that story. Let's get on. Let's get back to uh, listening to the rest of uh, Liz O'Riordan. Something that I really want to ask, which is sort of mm -hmm. off topic, uh, and it's I, I've, I've never been able to ask a surgeon this before. Now well, I'm worried. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> when it actually comes to doing surgery on someone, you know, yes. you are cutting into a living person. And it, yes. so in, in the instance when you had your surgery, you know, it was mm -hmm. a good friend of yours cutting into you. Yes. What what does it actually What's it actually like? And do you have to do anything to sort of cut it out of your mind that actually I was talking to this chap earlier this morning and now I'm cutting into him? Yeah, it's weird. The, the, first, the first time I did it, I, it was my first week as a junior doctor and I was allowed to do take an appendix out of an 11-year-old boy. And the stress of scrubbing up and sterilising yourself and getting around the little boy and your pasta knife, a scalpel, and you're told to cut the skin and you can't practice it. You can try cutting a sponge or a banana, but it's not the same. You don't know how thick the skin is and will it be like slicing through butter or slicing through an orange or through a but you don't know. And you start really hesitant. You're like, you're, you know, if you're sketching and you kind of make a million little shady lines yeah. instead of a dark solid cut, it's like, no, just cut through. What if I go too deep? What if I cut through the muscle or cut through the bow? You just have to do it by feel and you kind of learn to hold it with confidence a bit like a pen and just stroke the skin it's like oh wow and then you realize the anatomy textbooks are real oh underneath the skin there's this fascia oh and there's the muscle and the minute you do that it just becomes it's an operation it's not a person you have to dissociate yourself especially when it's really hard when you know people are going to die on the table you can't help them it just becomes a job when they're finished sewing up then the emotions kick in and the reality of what you've done or what you couldn't do comes in, but you just switch off. It's just, it's plumbing. It's a job. You have to be able to dissociate yourself. And that takes time. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll bet. Um, I've been seeing stuff in the media about uh, training medical students, uh, mm -hmm. less on cadavers. Yes. How do you say it? cadavers, 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 less on cadavers. Uh, it's Lady Godiva, isn't it? And is yeah, it is Lady Godiva. Who's that song? <laughs> yeah. So less on dead people that have yes. uh, donated their body to medical science, and more on um, kind of three D type, yeah, um, yeah, kind of com computer simulations. Yes. Did, did Did you train on one of those, or was you know that was after your time? Great question. So I I chose I went to Cardiff and I went to Cardiff because we trained on cadavers and I had two years of basically stripping a man who donated his body to medical science 
And that really, really helps you learn the anatomy. When you follow the path of a nerve from the tip of your little finger all the way back up to the brain, you get how do you walk? Which muscles have to work together to make your legs move? It was a, boring and painstaking, but you learned it. We now use a lot of 3D simulation because the body isn't 2D. You have to be able to see all the way around. And mm -hmm. there's a shortage of people donating their bodies to medical science. And actually, you, you often forget most of what you've learned. You become an expert in the one field you go to. So if you're a liver specialist, you will know the liver anatomy really well. You don't really care about the sole of the foot. But I think have, it's great to, and actually now operating, we can have 3D CT scans kind of projected over the human body and we can 3D printing a kidney with a tumor so you can feel and get a hold of it to realize what you're gonna find when you go inside. And I think it's fantastic this technology is helping people learn without smelling like they spent three hours covered in formalin. <laughs> <laughs> so so, th so this technology is, is very much a, a, a good yeah. thing. Yes, it's, it's really, so when we used to look at x-rays, you'd have two x-rays, you put them up on the whiteboard, but now with CDs and 3D reconstructions, you can actually see what is going on inside the body and yeah. how things are related to it. it. It's incredible. Brilliant, brilliant. All right, lovely. Um, another question, which is sort of, again, not so connected, but um, I think it's something that fascinates me. I've been to uh, some surgical conferences. This was related to my... my um, business where I import ergonomic furniture from Sweden. Mm. And this particular conference was more about backs. Uh, so I was there, essentially I was trying to pedal my wares. I wasn't really trying to sell chairs to surgeons, more to people yeah. that they look after. And uh, I've got to say, uh, so it was a room full of lots of surgeons and there were some stereotypes there. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I don't just mean bow ties. I'm, I'm talking yes. about the, the way uh, surgeons kind of carry themselves now I'm the, fully aware the God's complex well you know I, I, yes actually but yeah. during an operation if you're in charge there I'm sure there are some things that need to be done exactly the right way very quickly there's no time yeah. for little a nice little chat about it however <laughs> that did seem to sort of come out of the operating theater is it was, is, <laughs> was this just like was I just bad luck in the odd person I spoke to or is this a thing I think firstly surgeons are people and you get some surgeons who are able to remain very calm and very kind under pressure because that's them and others who are very flighty and offhanded. It, it, it's how most people react. But I think to be a surgeon, there's a hell of a lot of weight you have to carry on your shoulders because the buck stops with you. And in a stressful situation, some of us do throw our toys out the pram because you are just so concerned about what's going on. It attracts big personalities. And I think those big personalities are more common 20, 30 years ago. So the older surgeons are more like that. I think it's a different breed of us coming up now who are more normal is the wrong word, but more socialized, more normalized to how you are seen. Right. Surgeons yeah. aren't seen as the gods anymore. Thank goodness. It's calmed down. We're just doctors. But you do have that sense of, hey, I'm amazing. I fixed someone. I saved a life today. Um, well, I mean, and if everyone treats you like that, you get used to playing the part. And a lot of medicine is acting. You are acting almost every day. You're breaking bad news. You're bollocking someone. You're doing this. And often when you all get together, it's like a load of people. You, you become that kind of person. Sure. I mean, lots of doctors save lives. It's not just surgeons. You know. Oh, God, no. No. But I think th there are a group of surgeons who do think an awful lot of themselves. And they rightly so. But 
not always that a conference is the best place to have that behavior. Certainly. Well, I mean, the way I look at it is, you know, if I have a bad day at work, actually, probably no one dies. It might be a yeah. bit of a pain in the neck. I might send a chair to the wrong address or whatever. Yeah. And, it's a, and it's a bit irritating. But at the end of the day, but, actually, it doesn't really matter. But no, outside the operating theater, you shouldn't be a prick. You should still be a normal, nice person. Um, and again, it's medicine attracts people and people have different personalities. Um, and different personalities are drawn to different types of medicine. Yeah. I don't think I was ever like that, touch wood. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I didn't ask you, I, I don't think. Are you um, hoping to go back to be a surgeon? Because there's been a massive investment of your time and resources yeah. to make you a surgeon. No, I can't actually operate anymore because side effects of my treatment meant I can't move my left arm properly. Oh. Um, I and I could go back and retrain, but that would mean another five or six years of doing different exams and different speciality, and life is too short for that. I, I like my free time too much than to go and be on call again. Um, so I kind of help people online in a different way now. Yeah, and well, you help people through your um, your with through your book. Mm -hmm. and actually, you've written a second book. Um, I have, but that's we can't read that yet. Tell us the story behind that. No, so I started. There are no books written by female general surgeons, and I've been through a lot, not just learning to be a surgeon, but dealing with the bullying and the sexual harassment and the highs and lows of what surgery involves. But I also had really bad depression because I didn't realize as a consultant surgeon how hard it was to tell 10 women a day they had cancer. Every week for 10 hours a day. You don't get any counseling to deal with that. You just have to absorb it. And it was that was really, really hard. I got very dangerously depressed. And then I got breast cancer and came out the other side. And I just felt it's a story of hope and survival that can help people. So it's just been crowdfunded. Um, you can now pre-order it through Unbound. It's called Under the Knife. It'll come out next year. And I have a discount code for any of your listeners, um, which you can put in the show notes. Relax back UK 10. So if anyone wants to pre-order it, they can get 10% off. Excellent. Okay. So ha have you, have you got to your amount? I you yes, I managed, I managed to crowdfund the book in 10 days, basically from the incredible people who support me on Instagram and Twitter. It's incredible. Fantastic. And with their support, the book is now going to go ahead. I'd, publishing world is funny. I'd had about 10 rejections from the major publishing houses who said it won't sell. I thought I believe in this. And I hate asking people for money when so many people are struggling, but um, it's been incredible. I'm so How grateful. How can it not sell? I, I want to read it. I mean, admittedly, OK, I'm not normal. I'm somewhat interested <laughs> in health stuff, but I want to read it. Well, that's what I thought, too. And, I, and, I, and I've proved them wrong. So um, it'll be out next year and I can't wait. All right. Good luck with that. What Thank is you. what's next for you then uh, in, in your sort of your career, your health and your, your life? So I, I am passionate about exercise. We know it can halve the risk of you getting cancer halve the risk of your cancer coming back and improve all the side effects and symptoms of treatment. It is the one drug every doctor should be telling every patient to do, but it's boring. And I'm slim and fit and they say it's easy for me, but I'm really passionate about exercise. So my next project is trying to help a lot more people prescribe exercise to patients and help them do that. I'm also launching season two of my own podcast, Don't Ignore the Elephant, where I talk okay. about the stuff no one else does, like sex and death and money and body image, because I'll talk about my life to anybody. And that's been really helpful of just like with your podcast, you help someone, they say yes, it's another way of kind of feeling fulfilled. And then in a couple of weeks, I'm about to go cycling up the Dolomite Mountains in Italy <laughs> with my husband. Okay, I love well that, being that out. That sounds like you're, you're ticking the exercise I'm busy. Box, I am, I am. Fantastic. All right. Um, 
if people have been listening to this and thinking, goodness, what an interesting lady. I want to read her book. What do they do? You, you, you gave the code, but what do they do so, with the code? The cancer book is the complete guide to breast cancer, which you can find on any online bookshop. Um, the book is available through the website Unbound. Um, so if you go to Unbound and you can search for Under the Knife, which is the name of the book, um, you'll come up with a page and then the discount code RELAXBACK UK10. Fantastic. Liz, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Really interesting. Uh, it's been we've great. opened up lots of other topics that maybe we'll return to, but but for now, love to. Thank, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Mike. Let me just uh, say again how you can get Liz's book, her autobiography called Under the Knife. Uh, it's on Unbound. So you go to the website Unbound. The name of her book is Under the Knife, and then you can use the discount code, which is RELAXBACK. UK 10. Now this book uh, is going to be out next year but you can pre-order your copy for that. Also in the future uh, I'm hoping to get Liz back. She was talking about how exercise can help during cancer treatment and also reduce the risks of some cancer as well I think. I need to do some homework on this this subject because I think it can get quite complicated quite uh, quickly so I, I, I need to try and to find out a bit more, do some homework. And I hope to invite some other experts along as well. So I think that could be a really interesting chat. So uh, bear with me until that one happens. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things, make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits, and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% with the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk or click our banner on the UK Health Radio website. Discover alcohol freedom with zero zilch zip. Because nothing's better. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. So my guest this week, that was Liz O'Riordan, breast cancer surgeon, talking about her life as a surgeon and dealing with her own breast cancer. And of course... Thank you to you for listening. That was the Relax Back UK show with me, Mike Dill. Thank you for listening and please do join us again next time.